Welcome back to Chasing the Ghost Light, a podcast where I ask writers about the singular moments and stories that haunt them artistically. This podcast is produced by Three Girls Theater, a theater company dedicated to developing, presenting, and promoting new work by women writers. And this week's guest is Dr. Ayodele Nzinga. She's an artist and activist, also known by her alias Wordslinger. She cites August Wilson and Marvin X as key constellations in her artistic orbit. Ayodele is the inaugural Poet Laureate of Oakland and the founder of Oakland's oldest North American African theater company, The Lower Bottom Players, where she directed all 10 of August Wilson's plays in chronological order. Currently, Ayodele is a part of 3GT Investigates at Three Girls Theater, a documentary theater cohort where she's currently developing Surviving in Oakland, which explores the myriad of ways in which Black women and girls go quote-unquote missing in Oakland. Her newest poetry collection, Sorrowland Oracle, was published earlier this year. Thank you for joining me, Ayodele. So given that this podcast explores the ways that haunting manifests within the artistic process, what would you say haunts you artistically? It's not a singular image. It's a a collection of images, a collection of headlines. And in some cases, it is the absence of a headline. There are things like Red Summer, when racists went from one end of this country to the other, lynching, maiming, beating black people, wasn't really well covered in the media. Very little history about it now. You have to go and look for it. Mm -hmm. Red Summer. The problem at that point in time was that People were being registered to vote. I, um, there are a, a cacophony of images of dead and mangled bodies that made me question how one human, one group of humans could do that to another human being. There are images that, uh, emanate from the slave trade that are barbarous. And again, makes me question how one group of humans would do that to another group of humans. So that I am haunted by a, a cacophony of images of suffering, of brutality, of mm-hmm. places where Humanity loses the script and goes off the page. Surprisingly, images of January 6th this year I find extremely disturbing. Mm There is a place where you know things. And I think artists are good about knowing things, about intuing things or being the first to give breath to a thought. Artists are often accused of saying what other people are thinking. 
But sometimes when your experiential knowledge catches up with what you know intuitively, it can be traumatizing. Like the idea of intuiting that there's a part of the way that this government works that absolutely does not care if poor people die. And then actually seeing tent cities. I live in a city where the amount of homelessness has actually been captured and talked about by the United Nations as being a crime against humanity. So actually seeing that proof is, is disorienting. And mm. the thought that America has labored for a really long time to birth itself. And the fact that certain things like perhaps the Obama presidency, perhaps uh, the consideration of women for offices of power, perhaps this set of conversations about social injustice and inequity and racism in America put us on the precipice of being in 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 the the waiting room in the birthing room and then to see the images that were broadcasted around the globe on January 6th where people would rather see America stillborn than come into the legacy of what it is supposed to be which is the place for freedom justice in the American way, whatever the hell that is, for yeah. all of us, all of us. So the polarity that that signaled was um, disheartening. And again, one of the places where when your intuitive knowledge is confirmed, rather than feeling like, ah, I knew that, you feel like, oh my God, it's true. I know that you're currently developing a documentary theater project called Surviving in Oakland with Three Girls Theater. Could you speak a bit about the developmental process of this piece and also what it's been like working and collaborating during COVID? I think that in terms of working on it during a pandemic, First of all, we'll eventually understand we lost two years. We lost last year and we are losing this year. Mm -hmm. This is not a normal year. Again, we may also get to the end of this and understand that the word normal has been reframed. Um, there's a huge resistance between returning to the way things were before the pandemic. And I don't think that's held the same by all people. You know, I think some people feel really comfortable with thinking and hoping, let's get back to normal. And then mm -hmm. there are other people that are saying things have not been right, normal for a really long time, and let's not go back there. But they also acknowledge the difference in this two-year period, where everything got magnified, everything mm -hmm. got bigger. The dangerous got more dangerous, the desperate got more desperate, not having felt worse. And so everything, mental health, um, drug addiction, uh, the, the crimes of survival, um, 
people trading in flesh for survival, all of this became more intense. Um, and we focused on some things and allowed other things to fall off the table. Some conversations we carry in a very strange way most of the time. The conversation about children and young women being trafficked is one of those conversations. The fact that California is in a, a trafficking um, um, pattern that runs uh, across the globe and that this is one of the hot spots is a thing we hold in a, a really odd way. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually there's been less care shown in a lot of ways over the pandemic. Now, there have been some people that have noticed that and poured into it in particular. But by and large, th- this work has been made more difficult by the pandemic and the exposure and the reality of lack, uh, mm-hmm. a constellation of lack, things that people don't have. And they all sort of consolate in in this work. You know, most problems are a lot more complex than they look on the surface. So when we start talking about crimes of survival and how people are commodified. All of this existed, of course, before the pandemic, but okay, so I've already brought up the the lack, the defocusing, while at the same time, we have 51 homicides in Oakland so far this year. And when you take it apart statistically, it's mostly women and girls. So if you look at it, it's just another kind of violence that's enacted against black female bodies. Then it goes on. It has been exasperated and it is still not being well tended. There, it, with, without access or opportunity, it's very difficult to disrupt some things. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thought that is beginning to speak really loud is trauma. Trauma, the brokenness, and the the inability. You know, if we broke our leg, they'd tell us, don't walk on it for maybe six weeks, right? They'd tell you, maybe immobilize it. They'd put a cast on it to help make sure that where the break was stayed still. That's not how life works. In life, you are hungry in the morning, and then, you know, at noontime, somebody calls and reminds you that a really important bill is due, that if you don't attend to it, something negative is going to impinge the way that you move through the world. We move through streets that are less safe as nightfalls, People are literally out hunting, hunting for ways to survive. And so the constancy of the falling bodies, if one were to stop and process all of that, we'd all be crazy. 
out loud, stark raving mad, unable to get dressed in the morning, leave the house, comb your hair, brush your teeth, crazy. So instead, what we do is we feel maybe every fourth cut, because that's all we can process. And then we don't so much even feel every fourth cut. We acknowledge every fourth cut. Someone died today. We'll talk about that person. That person's name will be in the headlines for a few days. And even as that person's name is in the headlines for a few days, three or four other people have died that didn't make the front page. It's almost impossible to remember all the names or to carry all the pain. As an artist, as a creative in this work and in community activism, I want to take, it, take advantage of the fact that everything sort of is moving at a different speed. Mm -hmm. There's also an undercurrent of urgency. It's almost like, what can you do before it, it clicks back in and starts to move at the speed that it normally moves at? The world's moving really fast before we stopped in, in, in March. I had observed for the last couple of years what I called a, a frenetic energy. Everybody seemed really busy, but not a lot was happening. There, you, people were setting goals and people were marching. Of course, we didn't win equality. Of course, racism didn't get fixed. But everybody was so busy. Mm -hmm. And then the world stopped. And it was like a deer in the headlight moment. And now the world wants to go. But it's like when you start a, a gas uh, mower, that mm -hmm. sound where it won't quite catch. So time has a, a different feeling. So a way of looking at where we are right now is we're standing in a doorway, a doorway in which if we walk through it, we could literally walk in through another paradigm. People have argued about whether we've ever been in this doorway before. And some people say, yeah, we've been here a lot of times. We were here after the Tulsa riots. We were here after the killing of, of, of uh, Megar Everts. You know, there have been several times when the world has stopped and said, what is going on in America? But I don't think it's ever been lined up like this in terms of the stars, where the entire planet has been having a common experience and we've been sat down inside, which in my faith is actually an instruction to do some retrospect, introspective work, to look inside of you, mm -hmm. to see where you can shift things. But Literally, we've been locked into our homes and not able to engage with each other. So we've all become media junkies. So there's a lot of information out there to be consumed. And even with the polarization and in information, things like watching a man be killed over a 10-minute period are, are galvanizing in a, a very, very um, powerful way. So as an artist, as a creative, I feel like my job right now is to keep that door open, to literally lay my body across the, the doorstep, you know, feet on one side, hands inside, you know, keeping the door open. So how many things can, can we dig deeply into? How many things can we 
take from what we see on the outside, the symptoms, the band-aids? How many of those things can we run all the way to the root? You know, how, how did we get here with a street full of young women, too young to give consent, so too young men to be bought and sold? There's not a, a thought of, of choice here when you have not lived long enough to, to be able to have the information you need to make an informed choice, that we would allow this to exist right beneath the surface as we go to work, as we come home, as we chauffeur our kids to school, we pass through where these children, because that's what they are, children, are, are, are living out in the open and not being cared for. And it, it, it's okay. And that's awful. It's as awful as walking past um, families who sleep on the sidewalk as if they are not there. It's as awful as remembering the name of one dead person because they're all over the TV, but knowing there are at least three other dead people. And at the edge of your consciousness, you understand you can't know the name of the other three because you can't hold all that and still be human in the day. So how, how, how much, how much can I show you before you feel like you can't keep walking by it? How do I get you to see it from the point of view of a child who, who's not just passing through it. That, that is where they are. That is all there is. And no one is coming to save them. Mm-hmm. How do I make that intolerable for you? I know that you recently released Sorrowland Oracle, which has been described as a compendium of spells, incantations, prayers, and their translations into the event of being Black in modernity. So earlier you mentioned your faith, and I would love to know how your faith has informed both your writing of, of this poetry collection, but also your work as a whole. Um, I'm a practitioner of Ifa. Ifa is a religion that is native to the Yoruba region of Nigeria. It emanates from Africa. It is a form of animism. And most forms of animism at the base are, are nature-based religions. So... I have a saying, everything is the same thing. And that's kind of the answer to your question. Because the faith instructs what I, I want to happen next. It, in, it affected the book. And it also affects sort of a worldview. There's a, a, fa- a phrase, Iwa Pele, to be of good character just because, to be right. For right's sake, to do good, to be good, for good's sake. And it is said that if one develops Iwa Pele, that then one will have abundance. 
and prosperity, everything that they need. And the thing about Iwapele and this balance that is very nature-based is it actually shifts thoughts of what prosperity and abundance are, you know? Mm-hmm. It, one is rich if one can feed their family every day. One is wealthy if one is able to provide the blessing of living inside to his own family and, and, and perhaps outrageously wealthy if you are able to provide for people who are outside of your family to be able to extend that much humanity. If everyone lived in the spirit of Iwapele, then a lot of the problems we have, we, we wouldn't have. If we all did what was right, just because that was right. If we did that, we would do away with notions of scarcity. We would do away with notions of greed or the need to, I mean, the insanity of having so much until you would not possibly be able to worry about your own family for 10 generations and still to be invested in greed so deeply until you're willing to hurt other people's family so you can amass more. So the idea of of being in balance and balance as a human being, in balance in what does it take actually for me to be wealthy and, and to be abundant and prosperous in life, to be able to be a blessing to someone else? How many sins then do we eliminate in the name of the mortgage or to have a bigger house or a better car or for me to have more pairs of shoes than you, you know? So there's foundationally, I I believe I'm a human being. I believe that we're all human beings. And I believe that if we are not better at caring for ourselves, and honoring the gift of this blue ball that we live on, that there is possibility that there won't be any more human beings. There's never going to be a time when there are not any black human beings, or there are not any Asian human beings, or Hispanic human beings, or even a time when there aren't any white human beings, but there could very possibly be a time when there were no human beings. We don't learn to treat the planet and one another better. The disrespect that we show one another is mirrored by the disrespect we show the planet itself. And when you think of women, I like to think the planet's a woman. I think of the cosmos as being female because it's generative. And that's where we all come from is the cosmos. All of us. We know but stardust and God's tears at the end of the day. And if we cannot get in better alignment with that, and be the best, the best humans that we can be, then I don't know that we solve any of the problems. And if we could, if we all did practice Iwapele, being of good character, being good just because, then I, I again, I don't know what problems we would still have. Mm-hmm. So, again, everything is everything. So... There we go. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, but it felt good to say that. <laughs> this is a bit of a tangent. Originally, the term bisexual meant, you know, masculine 
energy and feminine energy and that people had, I guess, a tendency to towards one or the other. I think it's interesting how gender gets intersected almost invisibly with worldview. Mm-hmm. An example of it is how we identify ourselves through pronouns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently uh, changed my pronouns. My pronouns, um, I am um, a cisgendered woman, if you want to use that terminology. But it occurred to me that pronouns, when people say, when a female-born person says that their pronouns are he or, or, or they or them, what they're talking about is how they want the world to view them and the position in the world from which they view the rest of the world, the origin point of their perspective of the world. It's odd to me that those things also turn on agreements that we've made in, in, in the same system that decided we needed to name genders in the first place. But that, that'll that take us down another rabbit hole, so I'll stay away from that. So mm, I understood about myself that I'm not a singularity. I am not sexually ambiguous, but I don't do things for just me. I never have. There is always the, the thought that I am part of a set. And it's the thing that sort of impinges upon my humanity by making me black. It doesn't allow me to be simply human. So when I adjusted my pronouns, my pronouns now are she, we, her, and us. Because it is how I move through the world, and that is a perspective. And there is no individual black woman here. Mm-hmm. When you talk to me, you talk to generations of black women. And depending upon whose perspective we're looking at, perhaps you're unable to see me as a singularity. And I don't know that I am able to see myself as a singularity. There are things I cannot entertain because of other things that have happened to me or a part of, or, or have happened collectively to the group to which I am automatically coded as a part of. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a lot of complexity to me around things like closely looking at gender and, and picking one's own pronouns and then laying over the overlay of how that actually has a lot to do with how you move through the world and you want the world to move around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what you say about sort of the we as like a, a constant acknowledgement of, of history. Um, but also, I guess, like the, the inherent sort of like linkage within people as well. Mm-hmm. Interconnectedness is a huge thing to me. Um, you know, it struck me in systems when they said, you know, there's this, the butterfly theory, a butterfly flapping its wings in Yokohama, Japan, changes the weather, you know, 
in Alaska somewhere or something, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it is, we are all breathing the same air. Um, everything that is done, I, I think that things that are done to marginalized people think, people say that you judge the strength of a, a society by the way that it treats its women and children. I think that the ways in which we treat the things that we consider to be the most fragile things amongst us are signs of our maturity as a species, you know? Mm -hmm. There are so many things that are inherently attacks on females. Drilling, uh, uh, drilling the tundra, looking for oil every place, trying to get to the core of the earth. I mean, how metaphorical do we have to be? Mm. You know, yeah. get out of the mother. Just <laughs> get out of her. Quit sticking things in her and just uh, let things let things be in the places that they're supposed to be. I, I, um, I, you know, we've all been seeing these stories in California lately about the people who are surprised about the mountain lions in their front yard. Consider the fact that you're actually in the mountain lion's front yard. Mm -hmm. This this thing of balance in realizing that we are all interconnected and that we all have to share the planet together, that there are enough resources for everyone, that no one has the right to exploit another person, to steal someone's humanity, to steal their opportunities, to... To, to steal their toil, their labor, their toil, their labor, all of it belongs to them. The Most of the problems we have, I think, are because we deny other people who are connected to us, no matter if we cannot see it, um, denying them the fullness of their humanity. Every time we deny someone else the fullness of their humanity, a bit of our own is leached away. If we cannot understand that to marginalize whole segments of society, those doing the marginalizing have to spend a great deal of time being gatekeepers. And you can't, you can't have a prison without jailers. And jailers aren't any more free than the prisoners. So this, this, I, this idea of wanting every, everyone to be in balance, mm -hmm. of wanting us all to practice Iwape, to be the best human beings we could be, is is my is my recipe for saving the world, for making sure that humans continue to exist. I've no doubt the planet will. I'm just not sure we'll be on it. Ask the dinosaurs how that works. Yeah, how how that ended for them. In thinking about lineage. On a more granular level, I know that you've mentioned that you've sort of had a constellation of both mentor figures and artists like Marvin X and August Wilson who have really shifted your worldview. And I would love to know what, as an artist, that you know now that you wish you had known earlier. That creating is real work, that being an artist it's a real thing, that it is a thing of consequence. It's, a, it's just as important as being a politician or, or being a doctor or a scientist 
that art and imagination and the ability to create are powerful tools to be gifted with. You know, people have a way of diminishing artists as if they're people who won't go get a regular job. Art is not um, not the fringe on your leather coat. It's the, it's the joy and the step of the cow that gave up his life for you to have the coat. It is the center of everything. It is how we reflect our world and our experience in it. It's how we pray for our world and, 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 and the things that we would like to have that don't even exist. It is, for me, a form of prayer. And um, I feel very blessed and special after having my own period in time of, of thinking that art's like a, a, parlor tr- a parlor trick. Now, what will I do for a living? Um, I, at this point, feel extremely blessed to have been poured into by the universe, by, by, by the most high in the way that I've been, and then to have been held in a way that allowed me to fully be an artist, you know? So I would tell myself that it's important work, really important work, and go at it like that. Hold it like it's sacred, because it is. You know, the last thing I guess I would love to ask you is what going forward is your hope for art and the world? I think art needs a makeover. Mm -hmm. I think that artists are lousy PR people. And that's really crazy Mm -hmm. because we are the kings and queens of, of, of make believe and let me show it to you. You know, let me make you think about it. Mm -hmm. I think that the way that art gets minimalized is an interesting and clever trick that we ought not let stand. I think that artists ought to see themselves as part of uh, community well-being, as a uh, part of the fabric of public safety, as uh, essential to all well-rounded educations, as a part of uh, communities being healthy physically and mentally. And I think that artists ought to uh, take on a huge campaign that talks about how art does all of those things and how we are essential to a healthy, thriving society that wants to reach the apex of its humanness. I personally would like to make really large work. I am interested in multi multidisciplined work that alliterates uh, the conversations art is capable of manifesting across multiple genres, so you just can't miss it. You know, it's it's there in poetry. The poetry is in a theater piece where people are dancing, and look, they wrote those songs to go with this, and oh my goodness, the set is an installation, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I want to use art to make the world smaller. Um, the, one of the things that happened during COVID that was a lucky accident that we ought to hold on to a lot of events that would have just been small events for artists in the communities they live in turned into international events. And who knew that, you know, mm-hmm. 
women in Joburg have the same problems as women in Oakland, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I want to do art that actually connects us to the similarity in the way we live across the globe. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I think that art is what can help us get to that new paradigm. See, nothing terribly important has ever happened on Earth if there wasn't an art movement to record it, to amplify it. And so I fully expect that we will continue to to show up in that way on the planet. This is a time where all of the creativity that has ever been mustered is sorely needed to make sure that um, we keep that door open and we go forward into a better and uh, a more human-centered future. Well, thank you for coming on on the podcast. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Hmm. That we say it's the age of uh, the turn of the feminine. So I'm looking very forward to um, what we do with this particular moment. I um, I think that right now is a tremendous time to be alive. That the potential and the possibility of this moment, this space, almost for all people, but especially for women, is is just so immense. You can, I it, there's a vibration happening. If you just be still for the smallest of moments, you can literally feel it. And I am just really interested in what that song ends up being. Thank you for listening. This has been Chasing the Ghost Light. You can find out more about Surviving in Oakland on our website, threegirlstheater.org, and follow Ayodele at Wordslanger on Instagram and Twitter. Please share, rate, and review this podcast at wherever you find your podcasts. Our music is from the band Thrown Out Bones, and Chasing the Ghost Light is produced by Three Girls Theater with associate production and editing by Nicholas Angleton. Mm-hmm.